G'day, humans. Welcome to the show that doesn't deal in absolutes, that doesn't deal in blacks and whites. So many shows, so many politicians, so many commentators, so much of your social media feed expects either your agreement or disagreement, either your furious love or your furious anger. I do not. I ask only that we give each other the benefit of the doubt that we wrestle with ideas we reject as well as those we think are right. Let's escape the dogmas of conventional wisdom. Let's have conversations that straddle the cultural divide and make us all just a little uncomfortable. Today on the show, why do we seem to be getting worse and worse at understanding each other? Why is there such a gulf? Why are there so many taboos? Is cancel culture an honest way of trying to hold people to account? Or are the shifting sands of terminology too demanding and too fast to keep track of? And are they are the people being executed in bad faith when they transgress. All of this was swirling around in my head when I invited uh, Nick Enfield onto the show. Nick is a linguist, so he spends a lot of time thinking about how we use language and how taboos evolve and what we're really doing when we seem to be communicating with each other. He's a professor at the University of Sydney, a professor of linguistics. He's also the director of the Sydney Social Science and Humanities Advanced Research Centre. He's the head of a research excellence initiative on the crisis of post-truth discourse uh, and his research on language and culture and cognition and social life is fed into by a long history of his work in Southeast Asia. So he's done a lot of work on different comparative languages and the way that sort of, uh, you know, the construction of words and taboos impact cultures uh, across entire continents. Uh, he's written a ton of books, many of which are, you know, super arcane, things like Dependencies in Language or The Languages of Mainland Southeast Asia. Um, but the two of which you should pay attention to are, uh, one of them is called Language versus Reality, Why Language is Good for Lawyers and Bad for Scientists. That's his new book out uh, this year, 2022. Uh, and probably his most celebrated work is called How We Talk, the inner workings of conversation. Uh, that has been applauded in The New Scientist, in The Economist, in Nature, in uh, by J John McWhorter, you know, the celebrated professor of linguistics at Columbia University and defender of, uh, of free speech. Uh, the Economist said of that, uh, of that book, from a certain point of view, what's fascinating about human conversation is not how hard it is, but how we subconsciously cooperate to make it seem easy. One of the world's great experts in how we talk and why, please enjoy. Professor Nick Enfield. Well, that's all right. There's nothing we can do about it. And there's no, we'll just enjoy the dulcet tones of uh, some gentleman shouting at us through a loud hailer. Yeah, it sounds like there's a uh, possible alarm in some other building. We'd know it'd be very loud if it was this building. There's speakers everywhere, but it's, it's okay. some some neighbouring building. But let's. Well, someone's just... probably picked up your COVID, and they're telling everyone to evacuate. Possible, possible. All conjecture, <laughs> all conjecture. But uh, let's just start by tell us what you do, Nick, and what got you interested in it, and what what you sort of spend your days uh, working on. Well, I'm a professor of linguistics at the University of Sydney, and that makes me an academic that does what academics do. So 
sit That's around a lot, mooch on the uh, public purse, overcharge students for theoretical ideas that will be of no use to anyone, that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah, we've got our feet up all the time. Uh, but what I'm really in it for, like so many other academics, is the research side of things. And uh, my research is in the field of linguistics, which is the science of language. And my own work has taken me to mainland Southeast Asia. Mostly that's where I specialize and where I've done field work for many years, especially in Laos. Yeah. Let's, let's start there before we get to language in the West. What appealed to you about Laos? I was kind of inspired as a kid by various things that made me want to go around the world and go to different countries. One of them was an uncle that I had who ran an English teaching school in the 70s and 80s in, uh, in Sydney. And I, you know, through that, I met a lot of people from faraway places speaking faraway languages. And that kind of fascinated me. Basically, to cut a long story short, uh, one of the places where I spent a lot of time uh, traveling around and kind of going on a bicycle and so on was in Thailand. And I learned a fair bit of Thai. Uh, but a lot of that time I was in the northeast part of the country, which is a Lao-speaking area. At that time, it was hard to go into Laos. It was a politically kind of off-limits place. And... Um, I visited the border at several spots and just kind of got fascinated. And uh, one thing led to another and I started doing research there. You would have been proud on my recent trip to Thailand at uh, my four-year-old daughter uh, wandering uh, boisterously along all of the streets of Bangkok, waving at everybody, saying, Sawatika! in a beautiful kind of Thai sing-song and uh, receiving all of the the bounty of good wishes from all the Thai ladies that you could imagine. Lovely, yeah, lovely. And one of the wonderful things about that part of the world, you know, it's not the case in other places. It's kind of interesting difference. If you go to a place like Thailand or Laos and you can just say some simple thing like a greeting uh, or, you know, order a bowl of soup or something extremely basic, people will say to you, oh, my God, you speak fluent Thai or you speak fluent Lao. It's incredible. Um, where you literally, you know, don't know more than a few words. In other places, uh, you know, Hong Kong is reportedly one of these places that from colleagues I, I know who've lived there for years, you can study Cantonese, you can become brilliant at it, uh, and people will still say, yeah, you know, you really just speak English, just stick to English. You'll never really get it. <laughs> yeah. And then there are other places like you go to Paris and unless you can argue about Proust and 19th century French philosophy in perfect French, uh, they regard you as an interloper who should be booted out immediately. Yeah. So, you know, I didn't have to push against that in Laos and that was incredibly encouraging. I've, I've lived for a long time in the Netherlands and that's another country where people, you know, don't ever really want to accept that you can speak their language. Um, <laughs> so that was, I did learn Dutch. It was very hard work, but in Laos, uh, you know, I think that the local attitudes about the language are just incredibly encouraging. And, um, I, you know, I, I do credit that with, uh, you know, my, my opportunity to 
actually learn the language pretty well as I've done over the years. So how has your work on, uh, well, I guess how has your work focusing on the way that we speak in Western countries changed over the course of your career? I don't really know if it has changed. I mean, it's funny, everyone has attitudes about language, right? Uh, it's one of these things that linguists have to kind of deal with. If you study geology or, you know, chemistry, uh, not everyone has attitudes about geology and chemistry, right? <laughs> Um, but you know, with language, they do, you, you, you know, everyone kind of has a sense of what they like in language, what kind of way of talking is, uh, good or bad or, you know, outrageous or, or, or whatever. Um, everyone's got their own little sort of theories about language and I would have been one of those people, but doing linguistics, you know, one of the, if you do first year linguistics at uni, one of the things that you should take away is, you know, all that's wrong. Uh, your attitudes about language are, you know, don't bear much relation to what language is really like. And one of those things is, you know, uh, this is correct and that's incorrect, for example. These are very kind of political views rather than scientific views. So that was actually instilled in me the very first time I ever did linguistics. And that was actually before I even went traveling, I, I went to uni, did two months of uni before dropping out. And one of the units I did was linguistics. And th that was the one lesson I took away was that don't trust your intuitions about language, especially if it's your own language, uh, step back and kind of think about it um, empirically and analytically. And so I think that from the very start, that principle was instilled in me. And I don't, you know, I would hope that as a professional linguist, I haven't imported, you know, native linguistic ideology into the into the research that I do. Are there ways in which it's becoming more difficult to be understood? Uh, how do you mean? In, understood as in, in a language or? Yeah, understood in, I suppose, in the way that we converse. So there are some ways that, like, there are cultural and sort of class barriers to the way that we speak, right? Uh, there are things that get, there, there are, then there are things that academics talk about that sound completely uh, alien to the rest of us. There's lingo, there are cultural dialects, and in some ways, I guess, things are, we're, we're finding it easier within English to understand each other because of mass media. And in other respects, I feel like it's getting harder to understand each other because we're becoming more cliquey about the way that we use terms. Yeah, I do think you're right. So, you know, the, the, the real issue at the moment is scale and the fact that, you know, the world is very suddenly connected at a scale that's, you know, unprecedented, as people like to say. The, the population on, of Earth has been pretty big for a long time, but the way that we communicate now with the internet just means that we can form these communities with very, very tiny proportions of the population, but condensed into one place so we can actually be surrounded by people who are like-minded in some way. And, and, and one of those ways of being like-minded is sharing a, a kind of a specialization. So in the, in the division of labor, there is also a division of language so you know just walk into a mechanics shop and uh, the mechanic will know hundreds or perhaps thousands of words for little 
pieces that go into a car or a truck, you know. Um, so it's just natural that you have a lot of specialized vocabulary, whatever field you're in. But one of the kind of collateral effects of that is that we use words in the same word in different ways within each of these kind of little kind of cliques and sub-communities, right? So, you know, it leads to this obvious problem of thinking that the other person is using that word in the same way as you use it, but turns out they're not. And, um, you know, you walk away kind of understanding something different from, from what they understood. So for sure, I think that's kind of part of the issue, but there's another really important issue with understanding, and that is the purpose of even talking sometimes the purpose of talking is to convey information and update people on events and, you know, uh, whatever, whether it's gossip or, or, or something else. Um, but another important function is staking a claim about who you are or communicating that you are part of this group or mm. cementing the relationship that you happen to be in, in one way or another. And, you know, these two things, are really foundational to language. They're the main kind of two things we, we do with language and they're not always in alignment. So, uh, you know, oftentimes you're making an assertion because you want to indicate something about who you are and, and you accept the collateral damage, uh, which is that, you know, if that assertion happens not to be true, for example, or, or happens not to align with your true beliefs, well, I can live with that because it's more important that I you know, uh, express who I am in this, in this particular way. The downside is that other people don't necessarily realize what you're doing and they take you to be faithfully trying to convey some piece of information. And if it turns out to be false, then, you know, they're going to hold you, they may hold mm. you account accountable for that. And I mean, conversely, you may think that you're communicating something, but the words that you use might land for the other person who's outside your clique as being so in-groupy that it they see it as being a form of virtue signaling or not non-real communication. So if, you know, if a conservative uses the term woke, then I think anyone on the progressive left is going to immediately code that person as being in bad faith because woke is such a, a kind of pejorative, meaningless term at this point. And similarly, if someone on the left talks about the white supremacy it talks about white supremacy in a way that doesn't mean actual white supremacy, but just means sort of invisible power structures that underlie everything we do, or it talks about creating space for somebody or, you know, someone living their authentic truth or, uh, you know, finding safety in conversation or finding something triggering, then those kinds of terms, that sort of language is going to immediately turn off the conservative and make them think that the person is just, you know, babbling in code when in actual fact, they might be trying to articulate something. They just don't realize that they're using jargon. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So it, there's a, there's a constant kind of moving target there, if you like. And, and it is, you know, where is the true information here in this exchange? Um, so there's a, a very nice little passage in a, uh, in philosophical investigations by Wittgenstein, the famous philosopher. And this point's been picked up by various people, including Nassim Taleb and, and, and others. And in this, he says, uh, Imagine that you're, you've got a ruler and you're using this ruler to measure the length of some object, like a table. Um, 
you know, the, the ruler gives you a readout and you, you get some sort of new piece of information. But if it turns out that uh, you're not sure if this ruler is accurate, but you know the table well, you know how long it is, then you can use the table to measure the ruler. And he gives the example of a, a, a pupil in a class. So, you know, if the teacher asks the pupil, what's the capital of France? Um, th- they don't want the information, you know, they're not going to learn something new about France. What they're going to learn about is the person doing the speaking. Uh, do, do they know this piece of information? And I think the dynamic that you're talking about is really about uh, people reading the person who is talking as much as they're reading something about the world from what they're actually saying. Mm. And, uh, you know, these two things are constantly bumping up against each other in the way that you uh, suggested. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's a game that is always being played and you can never get away from it because every time you say anything, I mean, you know, you learn about words like woke or white supremacy that they are loaded in various ways and you can avoid them if you want to. Um, but, you know, the vocabulary is big and we know thousands of words and whenever we say something, we have to pick words, mm. uh, which is necessarily means we're not picking all of these other words. And so a lot of the time when we're not using those especially loaded words, we're still signaling all of this stuff about ourselves in ways that we we can't even uh, track. Uh, but it's a really fundamental point about, about the way that we use languages that we can never shut off those two kind of main functions. We're always convey, you know, making some claim about the world in the things that we say, and we're always revealing things about ourselves. You know, what words do we know? What ways do we like to describe things? Uh, what, what terms do we use and so on? Yeah, and I wonder whether or not, I mean, that reminds me of the elephant in the room in all these conversations about whether or not people are being offensive or whether or not people are being bigoted or whether or not people are retrograde or, uh, you know, or on the correct side of history, which is class, that like there's a, there's a certain way of talking that has become dominant in Western educated elites, which is quite a narrow university educated way of talking about racism and sexism and transphobia and and it can sound quite alien and alienating to people who don't don't come from that clique of uh expensive uh like highly educated uh cohorts and similarly the way that a uh, an average non-university educated person in rural or regional Australia, UK or United States or Canada might speak, they might be completely unbigoted in their heart, but they might just casually talk about things in a way that sounds offensive or retrograde to the university educated elite. And I wonder whether you think there's more or less tolerance of that, whether there's a way of escaping those kind of class boundaries and talking to each other in a way that resonates more? I mean, I think one of the core issues that you're touching on is this idea of accountability in how we talk. Um, it's foundational to, to language. You know, when we have conversations, it's a, it's a cooperative activity and we are accountable for the things we say in various ways. Um, but one of the problems I think that you're maybe alluding to is this idea that you know, even if you don't intend to 
offend the person who's listening or even if you don't intend to be read in a certain way, if someone reads you in that way, then you're accountable for having meant that. Uh, and, you know, I think this when is... When you say a you're really... accountable, do you mean that in practice you're held to account or do you mean that you actually are morally accountable? No, I mean you're held to account. I mean you can be accused of having said uh, or meant something yeah. Even though you didn't uh, mean it. And, you know, this is a really hard kind of problem to solve because uh, one of the things about language is that you can, you know, there's a big gap between what you literally say and what you really mean to convey. You know, it's one of the oldest kind of observations about how we use language is that we can rely on our listener to kind of join the dots. So a simple example would be, uh, you know, today's the due date, where's your assignment? And you say, I've been ill this week. And, you know, it's not a non sequitur. I can perfectly well understand the link between these two things. Uh, so we rely all the time on a listener to kind of see what you're really saying underneath the words that you're literally articulating. Um, and then the problem is, you know, that there's this downside of that, which is, hey, hang on a second, you read that and that into what I said, but that's that's not what I wanted you to read into it, or that's not what I intended. Mm. Um, and I think this is, a, you know, it's a really fundamental kind of problem in, I think, a lot of current discourse is that intentions don't matter. I think, you know, I've, I've heard you talking about this. I've seen a lot of discourse around this as a, as as being a real problem, um, and clearly. Uh, one of the things that would have to change if you wanted people kind of not to be held to account for for, for meaning things they didn't mean, uh, it, you know, is, is a kind of tolerance or is a kind of charitability. Uh, you know, people need to take things in the most charitable way. Uh, it's a pretty basic point, uh, but I think it's it's incredibly important that, you know, we need to assume that or we need to kind of look into what people say in a way that, you know, how can we view this in the best possible light? What might it mean if I'd said it? You know, these are the kinds of moves you want to make if you want to uh, make a charitable interpretation of what other people say. But I don't think that that's the rule of the game in a lot of discourse. I mean, it is in some. We have this concept of, you know, steel manning a, a position or, you know, ideological Turing tests and things like this. And I think that's there's a culture of that that we want to, or I personally would want to foster and, and see develop. What's an ideological Turing test? Well, the idea, you know, a Turing test is where you you have a person interact with, I don't know, let's say a, a kind of a chat bot or something like that, and you have to decide if you're speaking to or communicating with a, a human being or communicating with a computer machine and this is held to be you know an important test of artificial intelligence the ideological turing test is the idea that you know if you really want to be charitable in your kind of discourse around uh, whatever the topic happens to be where you have some kind of disagreement um you know, you want to steel man a certain position, which means, you know, it's the opposite of straw manning it. It's giving it its best possible representation. The ideological Turing test is that if you were to 
describe a position or make an argument that's not your own, uh, or whether it is or it isn't, doesn't matter. But it would um, not. It would be regarded as being as having come from a person who really believes that position. Then you would pass the ideological Turing test. I mean, right. this is one. Of, this is one of our problems in discourses that. You know, we say, okay, I don't agree with X position, and then we give some crappy version of X position, and you mm. know that that's that's straw manning. Um, the ideological Turing test is you. I make the position, and anyone who holds that position would be would not even detect that I didn't take that position. Yeah, I see. Yeah. My God, we're getting worse at that, Nick. I mean, like, but one part of the problem of not wanting to hear ideas that you regard as being offensive or or beyond the pale is that when we're getting bad at we're not flexing our muscles at understanding what the other side believes so i i mean most people who i know who very stridently and passionately believe in something cannot articulate in a convincing way their opponent's point of view which makes it very difficult for them to make a convincing case for their own uh, I can't remember who said the classic line that you know if you if you don't hear your opponent's point of view, then not only do you not understand theirs, you don't even understand your own, uh, and that's becoming truer and truer. Uh, the 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 more and more aggressive you become in in your own beliefs, I fear. Yeah, that's the famous line of John Stuart Mill: uh, "He who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that," or something along there those lines. Yeah, he'll do. Um, I think the the trick to this is you know, sort of embracing the idea that you can separate what a sociologist Irving Goffman called the animator of a message from the principle of a message. So the animator of some message is, you know, the physical body that animates the the sound. So I'm animating what I'm saying now by, by talking. Um, and the principle is the one who takes responsibility for that message and so one of the tricks about language is that, you know, I can separate those two things. I can quote your speech, even if it's something I don't agree with, and, and we understand I'm just voicing your words and I don't, mm. you know, hold on to those words. The problem is that it's, it's, it takes a bit of work to keep that distinction there and people are, are continually sort of find it difficult or even mm. impossible to separate the, the person saying the words from the you know the actual person who's con- who's convinced of their truth or who takes responsibility for their truth and, I, and you know that inability is really part of the problem uh here you know with doing things like passing the ideological turing test you really need to be able to separate out you know who's animating this message from who's actually sort of committed to its meaning or responsible for for its content yeah that's interesting, and and it's becoming more and more so. I one of the few times that I've been formally reprimanded for from a complaint as a broadcaster was I was on the air and I was talking about we were joking about something and there was some funny name of some exotic frog species or something, and it sounded a little bit rude, a little bit like you know almost what a racist would say about uh, you know another about I don't know Asians or something like that, and I, I jokingly and laughed. You said it sounds like what my grandmother would have said about the ethnics who'd moved in down the street. Uh, and uh, someone complained about the use of the word ethnics, and mm-hmm. it went up to the complaints department. And I had to make the case that, look, I was in the voice of 
of my grandmother there. I'm in the voice of someone from another generation who thinks that that's an okay thing to say. It's not Josh Zepp's, I mean, I wouldn't call them ethnics. I was saying like, and they, and then they said, oh, well, why didn't you put like on uh, your grandmother's voice, a little old lady voice? And I was like, well, because then I would have gotten complaints about demeaning, about being ageist and demeaning old people. Right. Uh, you know, so people's ability to kind of understand, oh, here's a joke in which someone is inhabiting a worldview that they don't share versus this is something that they're saying. I mean, you know, the, the ultimate example of, of this in the past decade is the rise of the N word as uh, as the acceptable thing to say when we're when we're discussing the existence of that word. I mean, I, I remember in 2012, I was doing a segment on HuffPost Live in New York about the phrase the N word. Uh, with a bunch of uh, of people of color, people of color is another term, and we just called them black people then, or uh, or brown people, but now people of color uh, uh, were on the panel who hated uh, the phrase the N word and found it infantilizing uh, and uh, and childish, and as if they were too weak uh, to understand the difference between uh, a person using a slur and a person simply referring to the existence of that of that word. And I came back to Australia on a trip after doing that, and I was talking to, I, I, I sort of did a test where I spoke to multiple Australians about the N-word, and no one had heard, no one knew what I was talking about in Australia. No one had heard the phrase, the N-word. Like, some of them could infer what I was talking about. But in Australia, in the early 2010s, if you were going to talk about the existence of this barbaric word, if you were going to say the sentence, the word, mm, is the worst word that you can use against someone and it should never be used as a racist slur, then you would have just said it. Mm. And in the past 10 years, that has not only become really a fireable offense in, in, in most environments, but the N-word has, has become ascendant. And anyone who's not on that page is regarded not, like, not just as not having gotten the memo, but as actually being racist for not having gotten the memo. Yeah, there's, there's a lot in there, of course. Um, you know, you're talking about avoiding saying it. If that doesn't go for everybody. So, um, you know, black Americans say it and uh, that is fine and that, you know, they have um, the license to do so, as it were. Um, I mean, coming back to where we started on that point, the, this is a classic case of the distinction between what linguists call using a word and mentioning a word what you said in relation to the word ethnic, you know, you were, you were mentioning it, uh, talking about the word itself as opposed to using it. And, you know, that really depends on this distinction between the animator and the principal. And we do that all the time. Every time we quote someone else's speech, every time we quibble about whether a word is appropriate, you know, we do that all the time. So it's not a, it's not a principle that is applied consistently across the board. It, it only, comes up when people take offense. And so in this case, you know, uh, you were <laughs> called out by some listener uh, who didn't like it. And, you know, I think the dynamic is very well known and it's a fast moving one. As you say, you know, it only took a few years for this uh, thing to really kind of take hold. And, you know, maybe it will take hold for f forever and uh, or for a very long time and people just will stop using that word and it will eventually disappear. But there'll be something else and then there'll be something after that and then there'll be something after that. And one of the, I think, important aspects of this is that it actually needs to be a kind of live issue if it's going to have the function that it has. And that function is what you might call ritual avoidance. You know, so avoidance is something that all around the world you see there, there are words that you mustn't 
utter. So in some cultures, it would be, you know, a person has died and you mustn't use words that sound like their name, that, that in uh, various Aboriginal Australian cultures, that's a, a taboo. Um, and there are many other ones like it, like it around the world. And what that does is it imposes a certain cost. You know, it's not a great cost, but it, it imposes a certain need for you to be vigilant. So you have to kind of think about whether this word is going to uh, resemble the, the, the name of that deceased person and should I use it or not. So it actually it, it's this little piece of language that requires you to keep you on your toes uh, and you should avoid it. And the reason you do that is because you want to be part of the group. You want to show the same values that the others show and you want to show that you are willing to incur this, uh, you know, this, this little cost um, which requires vigilance and so forth. So, you know, when you see people in the media getting called out for using these wrong words, oftentimes it's like, well, it just slipped out or, you know, it, it, the case uh, of the N-word, there was a, an instance, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I think it was Kendrick Lamar concert. Um, and, you know, a young woman was on the stage singing along the song and she actually pronounced the word. Uh, and then she, you know, she was told uh, by the by the singer, no, 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 you can't say that, you can't say that. Um, and, you know, that, that was obviously a slip up because this woman was like a, obviously a huge fan of this music and she'd probably driven in her car around town uh, singing all the lyrics of the songs and, you know, you get the idea. Um, mm. she, she was unable to suppress pronouncing the word in that context and that was her, you know, it was an error. And um, you can uh, certainly say that it was offensive to people and people didn't uh, like it or it harmed them in some way. I think that would be going a bit far. But um, what's certainly true is that she was unable or she failed to to uh, suppress the use of the word and therefore somehow failed her ritual obligation. Um, just like we have, you know, you don't want to say certain words in, in front of certain people, not of this kind, but just, you know, everyday swear words. They're good to say certain swear words in front of your mates, you know, your best friends. It shows informality, it shows engagement and all the rest of it, but you avoid them in other contexts, a formal setting or, you know, I'm I'm trying to avoid using these kinds of words now uh, because there's an audience, etc. Um, so it's really about knowing how to manage your verbal behaviour in ways that are, uh, you know, appropriate to the to the context. But it, it strikes me that what, what's a bit different here is a that the mores are changing so quickly, so people don't necessarily know. Like you'll have, you know. Uh, what, the people, kinds of people who I call outrage archaeologists going back through Twitter timelines to try to see whether or not someone has written the N-word in 2012 and then they will superimpose onto 2012 today's norms about about it. Uh, so you've got these very quickly shifting sands that not that everyone is expected to be up to date with. And then secondly, I think it's different from a swear word because I do think there's an imputation on the person's character in a way that there isn't with a swear word. Like if she'd accidentally said a swear word, any other swear word on stage, I don't think she would have been, it would have been re widely regarded that she's a terrible person. But I think the use of that, the breach of that ritual, like the mentioning of that spiritual totem, if you want to call it that, and the saying of that particular word, 
uh, is a blight on her character in a way that, say, saying the F word wouldn't have been. Absolutely. And the, the trick is, yeah, how do you keep up? And I think a, 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 another aspect of it is who gets to say what the current thing is, you know, what, how do we know? I mean, who gets to say is maybe uh, that way of putting it is kind of quarrelling around authority, which I think is worth doing, but maybe prior to that, I mean, how do we how do we know and when is it appropriate to hold someone to account when they actually haven't been able to kind of keep up? Um, this actually gives people a motivation to keep up. You know, it gives people a motivation to know what the latest thing is because they, you know, they want to be seen to be kind of responsive to it. Um, right, but, but that, isn't that a bit like saying that the the mob with a flaming torch who grabs witches out of their home and burns them at the stake is a good way of encouraging people to keep up with ways not to be a witch? <laughs> Uh, well, that would be a bit strong. I mean, I, I certainly didn't want to imply that um, whatever the current thing is is correct. You know, that that that's another matter, and it's a maybe an even more important, I mean, surely a more important matter in some respects. Um, you know, certain things when we talk about ritual, you know, certain things are pretty low cost, and you know, there's not a lot of cost from kind of refraining from it. I mean, I don't say the N word and. Uh, you know, nothing's lost from me not doing it, and I suppose plenty is gained from me not doing it. But I think that well, I'd quibble uh, with that. Uh, you know, a certain clarity of speech, a certain uh, relaxedness in language, a certain ability to communicate as naturally pops into your head uh, is uh, is lost, and what's increased is a certain self consciousness, uh, a, a constant catching of oneself before in in especially in fast moving heated debates where. You have to constantly be worried about treading on eggshells. It's it, at this point, it's probably you're probably not losing anything, but because it's so ingrained. But uh, yeah. over the course of the past ten years, I, I don't think it's costless, especially if there is no real upside. Like the question of how much offence is actually genuinely taken by people, or rather, how much offence would be taken by people if they were raised to be resilient in the face of hurtful words, rather than raised to be to to have a knee jerk. Uh, victimization attitude uh, and and fragility towards those words is an interesting question. Like I, I can't help but susp- I mean, just from personal experience of talking to all my black friends, I can't imagine that it's terribly widespread that people are genuinely or need to be genuinely horrified by you know academic people discussing how terrible the N word is and actually mouthing those mouth sounds. I mean, we can train ourselves to find offense at that. And the more it becomes a taboo, the more we will. Uh, but if there's no, if there was no great upside, I mean, I can imagine that if you're in your, your eighties and you lived through Jim Crow and you're in Alabama and you hear people talk about it, then maybe that causes uh, a certain you know, flicker of PTSD and that's to be avoided if possible. But I can't believe that that downside is proportional to the, uh, the, 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 the scale of the of the of how offensive we we are currently treating the word to be yeah no i take your point and i think um i suppose when i was talking about low cost you know it's really low cost on any given instance uh, but i think what you're pointing to is kind of higher cost as as things kind of accumulate if you're constantly avoiding certain ways of talking I mean, you can leave aside, you know, whether a specific word, there's some problem with a specific word, but I think what you're alluding to is more a kind of chilling effect 
um, that kind of settles in. If you're constantly avoiding not just one word, but a whole bunch of words, then, you know, as you put it, walking on eggshells and, and, and that kind of thing, uh, any specific kind of taboo or, or sort of avoidance rule will somehow uh, help to kind of build that atmosphere and and that you know in the end can be can be really counterproductive i would hope you know that what we can do is track again track kind of contexts so if we think about swearing um we swear in certain contexts and we don't swear in certain other contexts what, what you would hope and this i agree with you i think is where we're, we're seeing some kind of incursion here is that if you want to talk about language from a kind of scientific point of view and, and, you know, let's talk about the power of certain words and, you know, we're, let's say we're recording uh, people speaking in different communities. Well, we should be able to refer to these words in our conversations. Um, and as you point out, you know, that too is actually getting affected. So where you have zero context in which certain words or ideas can be talked about, well, you know, I, I agree that creates a kind of a, that creates a problem. And what about offensive language, Nick? So not not swear words, but just using, again, coming back to this idea that there's a sort of a university educated elite progressive way of talking about things. And then there's the way that human beings in the real world of suburbia talk about things. So, it, you know, I mean, I, I have family members and extended family who would talk about, you know, if they saw someone who was exhibiting very camp characteristics as a gay person they would say oh, you know he was a bit frou-frou he was a bit of a fairy or something like that and mm. then i have other friends in my more educated uh, elite cohorts who would only ever refer to someone as a, a member of the lgbtqi plus community and would regard the pre the previous description as being offensive or you know someone in someone in some context might see an Asian Australian and say, oh, you know, where do you come from? Meaning, you know, where does your, what's your family background, your family heritage? And that might be coded as being offensive if the, if the insinuation is taken to be that they're not a real Australian because they have, a, a, you know, Asian phenotypic characteristics. You might call someone handicapped or, you know, say there was a disabled bloke or something instead of saying that they were a person living with a disability as a person who's university educated might say. There are all these these rifts in the, in the language that we use that are not just like, you know, sort of different dialects. They're, again, becoming character assassinations for the people who, uh, who aren't up to date. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I, I think this comes back to the question of intention, you know, and holding someone to account for saying something that they or for, for conveying a meaning that they certainly didn't want to convey. And, I, you know, I agree with those who would say there's something paradoxical about this coming from, you know, people who are keen to promote social justice that, you, you know, for all, um, that that there's a difficulty in being, uh, you know, in taking the position of other people in this, in this respect. Um, maybe there's just a more basic issue and that is, you know, what is our sample of the community? Who who do we actually take the average person to be? Um, and and if you're talking about, you know, your average middle class academic who's you know going on Twitter and having uh, arguments about this, that, and the other thing, it's a it's a pretty small percentage of humanity. And a lot of the time, 
you know, well, people are just carrying on their day and you've got people of different from different walks of life uh, working together and, uh, you know, being friends and all the rest of it and talking freely in all these ways that actually aren't eliciting offence and sort of uh, accountability and all the rest of it. So, I mean, I think there is a an open question about, you know, just how much of these problems are part of the, uh, you know, the discourse that, that, that culture pundits are engaging in and, and just how much of it is really is part of the world at large. Mm. Nick, have you seen any changes in the way that academics talk to each other and what's acceptable in academia? You were talking about colleagues at, at university objecting to, to the use of certain words in, in public consultation. Yeah, so this is, I think, a pretty new development, maybe not in the States. So if you look at discourse among academics in the United States, you have um, a lot more attention to proper language or, you know, language that is uh, regarded as correct and appropriate. Um, but I, I would notice this kind of less in Australia, or at least until recently, and a couple of instances in the last year or so kind of really uh, attracted my attention. Um, so, you know, there was recently some consultations. These were over Zoom, uh, you know, really quite large groups of people uh, all zooming in together and, and, and talking about uh, various administrative issues. And um, on a couple of occasions, people piped up and said, I don't think it's appropriate to use this word. And uh, two of them that I can remember, one was development and the other was discipline. Uh, so discipline in the sense of, hmm. you know, an academic discipline. So linguistics, for example, is an academic discipline. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it's, a, it's just a word in the dictionary that describes um, a concept. And, you know, I think it's a really interesting case that you know, a colleague said, can we, you know, I don't want to see that word being used. Um, and the reason that was stated was that, you know, it has associations with violence, for example, and, you know, you can you can read into it. Um, oh, yeah, discipline, that's right. You know, it, it refers to punishment and it refers to coercion and these other kinds of meanings. I personally think that, you know, this indicates an overactive kind of reading into language, you know, you, you could never uh, speak freely about anything if you were concerned with all the possible... Well, I mean, it's know, not even the same word, is it? I mean, it would have a different a different dictionary number <laughs> underneath it. One's a noun and one's a verb to discipline somebody. A discipline, I don't even get it. It sounds the same. Yeah, it, well, I think, you know, they, they come from the same, ultimately from the same idea, but I think this is another sense of uh, outrage archaeology and that is, you know, digging and digging into the language and saying, you know, sometimes you see this where people say, oh, don't use uh, a, a certain idiom. Um, I, don't, I can't remember them, but, you know, there's one about circling the wagons, I think, uh, which I've seen people arguing is uh, it shouldn't be used because it has certain implications uh, in relation to, you know, colonial United States oh, and yeah. Native Americans. I once got um, into trouble in the States, Nick, for saying on the air, um, let's call a spade a spade. 
and there was a collective gasp from the control room. Uh, I didn't realize that to call a spade a spade, well, for a start, it's not offensive, but there's an apocryphal myth about its origins, which has something to do with slavery and turns out not to be true. I think it does have to do with dealing cards uh, and calling a spade a spade, but someone thought it was about slaves digging holes with spades or something so again yeah this is just one of the idioms that you you know you can completely unawares just pull out of your back pocket in a moment of uh of a torrent of speech amid the millions of words that we all that we all say and you know someone can cherry pick that out and and believe that because it sounds like something that uh might allude to something that was bad that means that you're also tarred with that brush and now i'm sure that tarred with that brush is also an idiom that people will take offense to yeah i think it's a very curious sort of development because you know my initial reaction was why why would you want to pull that out that word out and and say to people oh um we mustn't use that i mean it's it it was a sort of a real-time imposition of ritual avoidance in the sense that we were talking about before where now everyone has to be a little bit more on their toes and and not say that word well okay fine if that's you know if you want to insert that rule that's fine but then where does it stop? Um, what word does not have some conceivable, you know, if we apply our imaginations, uh, some conceivable bad connotation? Um, so, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of an obvious point, but it, it's, it doesn't stop the practice from, from, from happening. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's a surprising development, but it's clearly happening and people are not What's interesting, I think, is that people are not disputing it or sort of pushing back against it. So in this case, um, the person who was chairing the meeting kind of nodded their head and said, okay, um, and sort of let it go without saying, well, that's, sorry, we won't be able to do that. Or, mm. you know, <laughs> they didn't kind of resist this and sort of let it let it go. So I think, you know, maybe coming back to your point about would there ultimately be costs that would build up well you know maybe maybe uh, maybe there would but if you don't nip it in the bud and this is sort of what happened it wasn't getting nipped in the bud let's just see where where it kind of goes well i mean also just as a matter of principle who should be deciding you know you coming back to your question of like who's going to set the terms of this debate like who do we want to be dictating our culture to us do we want it to be an organic process of negotiation between all of us do we want it to be people like for example a dean at a university uh, dictating the terminology that's used at that university both of those seem like perfectly reasonable arguments i could take either position there but do we want it to be simply the loudest person who expresses the maximum amount of umbrage and tries to pillory people in public for not siding with them well no i think we should all agree that that's not the best that's not the best place to locate the the locus of our of of authority on matters of language or culture or, or taboos um it reminds me a bit about how you know yale and harvard got rid of the term master uh, you know, it's an old old English university term about the, how there would be the masters of the colleges and so on, uh, just a position of seniority. But because it sounds like a term that was used during slavery, students uh, rose up and said that it had to be abolished and Harvard and Yale got rid of that. Um, strikingly, Yale at the time did not rename Calhoun College, which is named after John Calhoun, who was uh, an actual uh, pro-slavery, anti-abolitionist uh, character. Um, so there seems to be some inconsistency or about the level of education of the people who are screaming from the rooftops about why master needs to be, uh, to be removed, but there you go. Um, yeah, and what was... I mean, it, inconsistency is, 
you know, I think what we've been alluding to, there's just an incredible inconsistency. And if I could just comment on your point about um, who gets to say, I, I think, you know, I think it's obvious, it's an obvious point that, yeah, you don't want just anyone, random person who happens to be the loudest to determine, you know, what the rules are going to be. But there's an interesting sense in which culture generally is actually like that. Um, you know, culture around the world stipulates rights that people have and duties that people have and, and punishments that can be meted out and rituals that get performed and so on. And, you know, they're not always fair. And certainly, you know, kids who get born into different communities don't get to kind of now just negotiate what the rules of, you know, what you name it are going to be like the marriage rules or the kinship rules or the rules of, of how the culture runs. So there's an interesting kind of issue here for just human beings and members of our species around the world. We are all born into a cultural milieu that we didn't design ourselves and we're all subject to the kind of rules of it. And maybe what we're seeing here uh, is culture changing at a rate where we can see that kind of arbitrariness or unfairness you know, in front of us. Whereas, uh, you know, for many people, you don't see that develop in real time. You just take it for granted as being, you know, well, that's how our people are. Mm. What was the dispute about the word development? Uh, well, it was the same idea. It was, you know, uh, using the word development, you would see this word being used in all sorts of ways in an academic context. You know, academic development uh, refers to just professors uh, developing through their careers and so we often talk about ac academic development and you know I think the word was being objected to on the basis that it's associated with economic development around the world which in turn is associated with colonialism and uh, you know um, development is building oh infrastructure God. and all the rest of it um, so I mean, how like how ideological do you have to be to object? Not even I'm not like let's step away from the whole linguistic question, just the economic question and the political question. How would you be opposed to development? Like, I mean, do we think that the problem in the world is that there's not enough underdevelopment? Well, it's you know I think someone is. We gonna... could all use a bit more underdevelopment. We could all so be I... a little bit more like sub-Saharan Africa and a little some, bit less like the West. Some may come back and say that's unfair, um, you know, that that they would not be saying uh, that we shouldn't have development if development means things like minimising child mortality or, you know, uh, health of uh, uh, pregnant women or, you know, what, or better uh, transport or what have you. It's just that, a lot of these things are, and some would argue that all of these things, like infrastructure development, are deeply, deeply political. They're deeply, uh, you know, have all of these financial um, implications for kind of global markets and corporate interests and all the rest of it. Um, you know, again, it's sort of taking a non-charitable uh, view of what development would be, but you can frame it. You can frame a development project as being, you know, in the interests of those who might benefit from it on a, 
you know, in in, in terms of the uh, financial market or, or or what have you. And it's also well, that you can. I mean, you can say that you could have to be. We could be talking about the development of Nazism in 1930s Germany. Therefore, we shouldn't use the word development. <laughs> but I mean, the plain reading of the word can be applied to so many uh, contexts in which it's not bad that it strikes me as just perverse to be absolutely absolutely cherry picking the one in which the one where it is so i think it really indicates like the futility of quibbling about words uh, in this sense i mean what's important is the meaning i mean okay what even does development mean if you want to sort of drill into it uh the problem uh, here would be just the assumption that development means any one thing you know obviously it means a lot of different things and a lot of different instances of development have been either amazingly good or amazingly bad um you know in ways that are just historically contingent uh and the idea that you can sort of select any of them and and state that they are uh conveyed by someone's use of this particular one word in the language is Mm. as you as you put it perverse I'd love to hear from someone if they understand this better than I do. Uh, you can email us uncomfyconvos at gmail.com, uh, uncomfy with a Y, convos at gmail.com. Do you, is there something that I'm missing here about uh, development? Because, I mean, the development of a cancer tumor is bad and the development of a radiology lab is good. Uh, I don't get it. Anyway, um, another thing you mentioned, Nick, is is this movement to sort of decolonize academia. What does is, what is deco- the decolonization of academia mean? I mean, this term is relatively recent. Um, I don't know. I mean, going back maybe the last two or three decades, so maybe not that recent, but certainly picking up steam in recent years. And the idea is that academia and kind of university life is really grounded in... um, I don't know, a kind of Eurocentrism that uh, has been supported by and also supported uh, the whole kind of colonial project out of Europe uh, over centuries. Um, And, you know, it's a kind of obviously a very broad sweeping claim, but there's a claim that this has infected science in various kinds of ways. Um, So I can, you know, I can talk about linguistics, obviously the field I know best. and the idea of decolonization is to say, well, we want to right that wrong in some sense. We want to undo the problems that have been created by a kind of a colonialized uh, curriculum or a colonialized form of science. So, uh, for example, people who are calling for decolonization of, for example, a linguistics uh, curriculum would be saying, okay, we don't want to just have readings being given to students that are by people from European countries or, you know, uh, white-skinned people. Um, We want to instead have uh, some balance, some representation that includes articles and studies by people who come from the countries that are being studied. So in, in linguistics, you know, it's about people and it's about people from all around the world. So the idea is that, you know, if I'm working on a language that's spoken in Laos, as I do, then, you know, what we want to do is have some 
engagement with people who are from that place and uh you know so readings by them for example that would be one thing that you would want to do if you were trying to decolonize the curriculum i mean there's a there's a lot more to it than that um which i mean that sounds that sounds fair though doesn't it i mean if you're studying a foreign culture not to take a sort of you know, 18th century view of just uh, being the colonialist who's talking about them, but rather to look at the texts that they've been writing themselves. Absolutely fair. And and uh, it's exactly what we need to be doing. I mean, the, the case of linguistics is interesting um, because it really indicates what I think is is a, a, a really good illustration of quite an advanced form of decolonization. So, you know, to, to sort of help understand the problem here, it's not that hard in linguistics to to just go back to times of the bad days of when colonialism was in full swing. Um, you find in books about, I don't know, Aboriginal Australia or anywhere else in the world where people are encountering Indigenous groups, they would say these outrageous things about the languages that, you know, these are sub- standard languages or they're primitive or the people only know a few dozen words and they just sort of you know bark like dogs or whatever ridiculous uh things that are said and these have been they're obviously uh reflections of people's complete lack of understanding and oftentimes you know animosity towards indigenous groups and and political motivation to try to sort of denigrate them as not really human so therefore we want to take their land and this kind of thing i think you know there's there's a, there's a real case to be made there that these these claims for all sorts of reasons are obviously terrible and but apart from anything else they're completely false um so of course what you want to do so linguistics is interesting here you go back to that time uh you see let's say you know 18th century 19th century early you see these complete misconceptions and really awful things being said about indigenous languages and, and groups, just, just complete rubbish. Um, but you had in the, uh, particularly the early part of the 20th century, a very big shift, uh, which if you go back and look at the writing of people like Franz Boas, Edward Sapir, these are anthropologists in uh, the United States who were working with Native American languages, they were coming out and saying, look, European languages aren't the yardstick that languages need to be understood in terms of. They're just, you know, one, they just show one kind of set of properties that human languages can have. The, we've been studying these Native American languages carefully and actually they're incredibly complex in these really interesting ways and they change our conception of what human language is. And, you know, this is a, was a really phenomenal first step in what you might call you know, the decentering of European languages in our scientific conception of language. And that to me is like one really important major step that any sort of decolonization project would need to take. That is, mm. you know, decentering the European, which is, you know, the opposite of what a, a colonial project um, it does. There's a second really important piece of this decolonization process, and that is giving the community's power over the research that's going on and you know so so the archetypal form of a uh you know bad colonial research project is a completely unethical uh 
case of someone swanning into a community, extracting, you know, words and bits of the language like they would extract teeth or something, um, you know, and then leaving and the community gets nothing out of it. The community really puts nothing into it. They don't help to shape the research. Uh, it's, it's true. I mean, this stuff has happened and it's had bad results all around. We have poor science, uh, poor impacts on the on the communities and so on. Um, and again, in linguistics, particularly since the 1980s, there have been these fantastic developments around the world where fieldworking linguists have said, look, we need to work with our communities. Uh, we need to be guided by their knowledge of their own languages. We need to be guided by their interests in their own languages. And that's led to, you know, a, a, an incredible array of projects around the world where native speakers of certain languages are getting involved at the forefront of the research on their languages. So, you know, this is coming back to, to, to the point you, you were making just before, that's exactly how you would want it, right? Mm. You, you get people uh, who you're working with, who you're trying to understand to really have a, a, a stake in the research that's being done. And linguistics has shown decades of progress and I think it's it's really fantastic and there's plenty more work to be done uh, and I think it's important when we're looking at this move for decolonization in, in in any sort of field but in my case linguistics it's important to acknowledge that progress and sort of think about how you know it, it's not that as some people want to imply it's not that you know linguistics today is indistinguishable from you know, a slave owner's justification of their activities. Um, there's work to do still, for sure, but there's been great progress. It sounds like an actual remedy to actual cultural appropriation. Um, like we hear a lot about cultural appropriation these days in terms of, you know, who gets to braid their hair and whether they have the right skin colour to be able to do that or whether or not a, you know, a a, a family diner in the Midwest is allowed to make Mexican food, even though they're not Mexicans and everyone gets in a half about whether or not th things are authentic. Um, and that's always bothered me a little bit because what I love about modern culture is the mishmash of different cultures and pilfering here and there. Like you go to India and, uh, you know, there's this delightful kind of patois in India where people will have borrowed and uh, reused and repurposed English words into Indian in all these delightful and counterintuitive ways that we don't quite understand, but that make, that make a certain bizarre sense. And um, so then to sort of denigrate anybody who isn't Indian for also borrowing from Indian culture strikes me as uh, a little bit weird when there is this interplay, not to gloss over the, the history of uh, colonialism in India, but there is in the 21st century this uh, sort of delicious interplay between American culture and Indian culture. But uh, yes, that it sounds like what you're talking about is a, is a direct uh, affront to uh, the sort of easy assumptions that that genuine cultural appropriation took when we went in and just uh, and pilfered with no regard for for locals or for any any back and forth or give and take um i wonder what you think about uh, nick uh, how where when we think about updating language and sort of updating the the way the terms that we use to refer to things uh, it, we, we're currently in a federal election in australia and elections coming up uh, soon in a few weeks. And I was walking past a campaign sign for a local member 
which said bringing tax relief to 64,000 locals. And I was reminded of, I think it was Frank Luntz, the American uh, political language uh, expert, Republican strategist, who coined tax relief instead of tax cuts. Because I saw saw it and I thought, oh, yeah, some relief would be nice from my taxes. I'd like relief. It sounds better than tax cuts, doesn't it? Yeah. And then there are all these other things like being, you know, pro-choice, uh, and pro-life instead of just pro-abortion or anti-abortion or something or something like that. W- which side of politics do you think does language better? I think that none of them have a monopoly, really. Uh, it all depends. You know, I think it differs from campaign to campaign and country to country. Uh, you know, you can be terrible with language or you can be savvy with it, but I think everyone knows the power of it and... That's why people pay uh, a lot for, you know, marketing people to try to help them with these things. So people like Frank Luntz, uh, you know, that's what they do. They hold focus groups and they look at, uh, you know, how linguistic framing affects people's decision-making. And you can see in the, in the research, you know, on, on so-called nudging and, and so forth that these little bits of wording can really make a difference. So what the example that I like is from, uh, you know, the credit card industry when they were first trying to get people to take up the use of credit cards, uh, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, uh, they were lobbying for, you know, they were looking at the difference between these two terms. One was credit card surcharge uh, and the other was cash discount. So the, you know, two ways of framing the exact <laughs> same thing. When you, you know, when you use a credit card, you have to pay this little bit extra. And they said, no, 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 we don't want that. What we want is, you know, you pay with the credit card. That's just the price. And mm. if you want, if you want, you can pay cash and get a little discount. And it, it, it under the hood, it's exact same thing, you know. Um, but it, how it sounds. It, it not only has that nice sound, like you said, like the word relief, relief sounds good. People have all these associations with words, but it goes deeper than that too. It really enters into their reasoning. And we, we know, for example, you know, it's in our psychology that we are uh, willing to forego uh, little, little uh, kind of benefits more than we are willing to incur costs that are basically of the same order. So, you know, that's why we, we have uh, credit card people, you know, lobbying for specific language because they know that people's decisions will mean, you know, their, their decisions will make differences in millions and millions of dollars of revenue. So politicians know the same thing. Unfortunately, it doesn't mean that they are any good at it. I mean, you know, using language cleverly is a real art and skill and there's no guarantee that anyone's going to be able to kind of uh, pull it off. But so I I think it is an art and a skill and uh, who's actually getting it right will depend on, on, on the situation. And lastly, Nick, you wrote a piece last year called We Could Be a Nation of Nuance, uh, essentially posing the question of, you know, is Australia actually better placed than comparative countries to be a place where nuance thrives? What do you mean by nuance and why do you make that case? So I think the idea of nuance really goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, which is the idea that you 
can talk about issues in such a way that, you know, you're not going to get caught up in who's pronouncing which words. You're not going to get caught up in uh, the displays of identity or affiliation that certain ideas or ways of talking, you know, are conveying. You're going to cultivate the possibility to step back from that and, you know, really kind of circulate different ideas with the aim of letting the best ones evolve you know that's 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 a kind of an evolutionary concept of of decision making and, and consensus and so on is that you uh you have a diversity of ideas and that diversity is what allows you know evolution in the literal sense uh, you know populations are diverse and some individuals do well for different reasons and the argument is the same thing is there with language uh, and with ideas which are of course expressed through language so nuance is the capacity to live with that sort of diversity of ideas, but also to not assume that, you know, this one word captures the whole thing. So we were talking before about a single word like development or discipline. Um, don't get hung up on, a, on, on the essence of some category, but step down a level and say, okay, what are we actually talking about in res- with respect to this particular instance, we're trying to solve a certain problem, fix a problem in in the university or in society or whatever it may be. Um, the key is to embrace that diversity and not get distracted. And what I think is that you know Australia is in a good position. It's not because I think Australia you know necessarily is the home of some different kind of mentality. It's just that we aren't as far down the path that we see public discourse in the US as being. Um, so my view and what I was trying to articulate in that paper that you're mentioning is, is that, you know, in Australia what we should be doing is looking at what's happening in public discourse in the States especially and saying to ourselves, we don't want to be part of that. We want to be a home of real progress. We want to be uh, a nation of scientists, not a nation of lawyers. You know, uh, we, we want to be able to arrive at the truth. However, you know, uncomfortable those conversations may be, uh, it, to, to use a kind of a meta reference to this program. Um, so I think, I think that's the kind of key here is that we are able to actually say, wait, you know, we could sort of develop a brand here in some sense. People are lamenting at the moment about the the direction that academia and and, and also public intellectual life are taking in, in places like the States. And wouldn't it be wonderful if here we could develop a different brand in some sense and say, no, Australia is where you go if you want to actually have nuance. I like it. Uh, let's all storm the barricades on that particular sentiment. Nick, it's uh, great, great to talk to you. Enjoy your, uh, your COVID, your imminent COVID. Thanks very much for having me. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Zepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.